Chapter 36 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 36 But the cruel destiny of our race was not yet accomplished. Albert was still to suffer. His heart was to bleed eternally for that family, innocent of all his ills, but condemned by a strange fatality to crush him while breaking itself against him. We had not hidden from him, as soon as he had strength to bear the tidings, the death of his respectable father, which happened shortly after his own for I must use this strange expression to characterize so strange an event. Albert had wept for his father with enthusiastic tenderness, with the certainty that he had not quitted this life to enter into the nothingness of the paradise or of the hell of the Catholics, with the kind of solemn joy which was inspired by the hope of a better and more enlarged life here below for that man so pure and so deserving of recompense. He was therefore much more afflicted by the abandonment in which his other relatives, the Baron Frederick and the canoness Wenceslau, were left, than by the departure of his father. He reproached himself for enjoying far from them consolations which they did not share, and he had resolved to go and visit them for some time to let them know the secret of his cure, of his miraculous resurrection, and to establish them in the most happy manner possible. He was ignorant of the disappearance of his cousin Amelia, which occurred during his illness at Riesenberg, and which had been carefully concealed from him in order to spare him an additional sorrow. We had not thought it best to inform him. We had not been able to withdraw my niece from a deplorable error and when we were about to seize upon her seducer, the pride of the Saxon Rudelstadts had anticipated us. They had caused Amelia to be secretly arrested in the territories of Prussia, where she had flattered herself she could find a refuge. They had delivered it to the rigors of King Frederick, and that monarch had given them a gracious mark of his protection by confining an unfortunate young girl in the fortress of Spandau. She has passed nearly a year there in a horrible captivity, having had no communication with anyone, and ought to consider herself fortunate that the secret of her dishonor was closely guarded by the generous protection of the jailer monarch. Oh, madam, interrupted Consuelo with emotion, is she then still at Spandau? We have succeeded in procuring her release. Albert and Liverani could not carry her away at the same time with yourself, because she was much more closely watched. Her revolts, her imprudent attempts to escape, her impatience and her bursts of passion having aggravated the rigors of her slavery. But we have other means than those to which you owed your salvation. Our adepts are everywhere and some seek the favor of courts in order to contribute to the success of our designs. We have caused to be obtained for Amelia the protection of the young Margravine of Bereath, 
sister to the king of Prussia, who was asked for and obtained her liberty, on promising to take charge of her and to be answerable for her conduct in future. In a few days, the young baroness will be with the princess Sophia Wilhelmina, whose heart is as good as her tongue is wicked, and who will grant to her the same indulgences and the same generosity which he has manifested toward the princess of Combach, another unfortunate, dishonored in the eyes of the world like Amelia, and like her a victim of the penitentiary discipline of the royal fortresses. Albert was therefore ignorant of the misfortunes of his cousin when he took the resolution of going to see his uncle and his aunt at Giant's Castle. He could not have realized the inertia of that Baron Frederick, who had animal strength enough to live, to drink and to hunt after so many disasters, and the devout impassiveness of that canoness, who feared, lest by taking any measures to discover her niece, she might give more publicity to the scandal of her adventure. We combated Albert's project from fear, but he persisted without our knowledge. He departed one night, leaving for us a letter which promised a speedy return. His absence was short, in fact, but what sorrows did he bring back? Concealed under a disguise, he entered Bohemia and went to surprise the solitary Zdenko in the grotto of the Schreckenstein. Thence he intended writing to his relatives in order to inform them of the truth and to prepare them for the shock of his return. He knew that Amelia was the most courageous as well as the most frivolous, and it was to her that he intended sending his first missive by Zdenko. At the moment of doing so, and when Zdenko had gone out upon the mountain, it was at the approach of dawn. He heard the report of a gun and a heart-rending cry. He rushed out, and the first object that met his view was Zdenko, bringing back in his arms cinnabar covered with blood. To run towards his poor old dog, without thinking to conceal his face, was Albert's first impulse. But as he carried the faithful animal, mortally wounded, towards the place called the Cave of the Monk, he saw running towards him, as fast as old age and fat could permit, a hunter earnest to pick up his game. It was Baron Frederick who, hunting in the covert, with the first glimmer of day, had taken Cinnabar's fawn-colored skin in the twilight for the hide of a wild beast. He had aimed through the branches. Alas, his eye was still true and his hand firm. He had touched him. He had put two balls in his side. Suddenly he perceived Albert, and thinking that he saw a specter, stopped frozen with terror. Having no longer the consciousness of a real danger, he recoiled to the brink of the craggy path he was following and rolling over the precipice, fell broken upon the rocks. He expired on the spot at the fatal place with the cursed tree, the famous oak of the Schreckenstein, called the Hussite, formerly witness and accomplice of the most horrible catastrophes, had reared its head for centuries. Albert saw his uncle fall, and left Sedanko to run to the edge of the abyss. He then saw the baron's followers who hastened to raise him, while they filled the air with their groans, for he gave no sign of life. Albert heard these words ascend even to him. He is dead, our poor master. Alas, what will Madame the canoness say? Albert thought no longer of himself. He cried out. 
He called, as soon as he was perceived, a panic terror seized upon the credulous servants. They had already abandoned the body of their master and begun to fly, when old Hans, the most superstitious and also the most courageous of all, stopped them and said, crossing himself, My children, it is not our master Albert who appears to us. It is the spirit of the Schreckenstein that takes his form to make us all perish here if we are cowards. I saw him well. It was he who made Monsieur the Baron fall. He wished to carry off his body to devour it. He is a vampire. Come, take heart, my children. They say that the devil is a coward. I will take aim at him. Meanwhile, say Sir Chaplin's prayer of exorcism. Saying this, Hans, having again crossed himself several times, raised his gun and fired upon Albert, while the other servants gathered round the corpse of the baron. Happily, Hans was too much agitated and frightened to take good aim. He acted in a kind of delirium. The ball, nevertheless, was so close to Albert's head, for Hans was the best shot in the country, and if he had been cool, would infallibly have killed my son. Albert stopped irresolute. Courage, children, courage, cried Hans, reloading his gun. Fire at him. He is afraid. You will not kill him. Your balls cannot hit him. But you will drive him back, and we shall have time to carry off our poor master's body. Albert, seeing all the guns pointed at him, retired into the thicket, and descending the slope of the mountain without being seen, soon assured himself of the horrible reality with his own eyes. The broken body of his unfortunate uncle lay upon the bloody stones. His skull was open, and all hands cried out with a disconsolate voice these horrible words. Gather up his brains and leave none of them upon the rocks, for the vampire's dog would come and lick them, Yes, yes, there was a dog, replied another servant, a dog which I took for Cinnabar at first. But Cinnabar has disappeared ever since the death of Count Albert, said a third. He has not been seen anywhere since. He must have died in some corner, and the Cinnabar that we saw up there is a shadow, as this vampire is also a shadow resembling Count Albert. Abominable vision. I shall have it always before my eyes. Lord God! Have pity upon us and upon the soul of Sir Baron, dead without the sacraments, from the malice of the spirit. Alas, I told him some misfortune would happen to him, resumed Hans in a lamentable tone, as he collected the shreds of the Baron's garments with hands dyed in his blood. He wanted always to come and hunt in this thrice-cursed place. He was convinced that because nobody came here, all the game of the forest found shelter here. And yet God knows that there never was any other game on this infernal mountain but that which still hung in my youth upon the branches of the oak. Cursed Hussite, tree of perdition, the fire of heaven has devoured it. But so long as there remains a root in the earth, the wicked Hussites will come here to avenge themselves on the Catholics. Come, come, make up the litter quickly and let us go. We are not safe here. Ah, Madame the Canoness, poor mistress, what will become of her? Who will dare to present himself first before her, and say, as on other days, Sir Baron is returning from the hunt? She will say, 
Had breakfast served up very quickly. Ah, yes, breakfast. It will be long before anyone feels an appetite in the chateau. Well, well, there are too many misfortunes in this family, and I know well whence they come. That do I. While they were placing the body on the litter, Hans, pressed by questions, replied, shaking his head. In that family, everybody was pious and died in a Christian manner up to the day when the Countess Wanda, to whom, may God be merciful, died without confession. Since that time, all must end in the same way. Monsieur the Count Albert did not die in a state of grace, whatever they may have said to him, and his worthy father bore the penalty. He gave up his soul without knowing what he did. Here is another who goes without sacraments, and I'll bet that the canoness will finish also without having time to think about it. Happily for that holy woman, she is always in a state of grace. Albert lost none of this deplorable speech, the rude expression of a real sorrow and the terrible reflection of the fanatical horror with which we were both regarded at Riesenberg. Longstruck with stupor, he saw the gloomy train disappear afar in the paths of the ravine and did not dare to follow it, although he felt that in the natural order of things he should have been the first to carry the sad tidings to his old aunt, that he might comfort her in her mortal sadness. But it is very certain that if he had done so, his apparition would have struck her with death or insanity. He understood this and retired despairing to his cavern, where Zdenko, who had seen nothing of the more serious accident of that fatal morning, was busy bathing Cinnabar's wound. But it was too late. Cinnabar, on seeing his master return, uttered a groan of distress, crawled to him in spite of his broken loins, and expired at his feet as he received his last caresses. Four days afterward, we saw Albert return, pale and overpowered by these new blows. He remained several days without speaking, without weeping. At last his tears flowed on my bosom. I am cursed among men, said he to me, and it seems that God wishes to close against me this world in which I ought not to have loved anyone. I can no longer appear in it without occasioning horror, death, or madness. The die is cast. I must not again see those who took care of my childhood. Their ideas of the separation of the soul and body are so absolute, so frightful, that they prefer to believe me forever chained in the tomb rather than be exposed to see again my ominous features. Strange and horrible notion of life. The dead become objects of hatred to those who have most cherished them, and if their specters appear, they are supposed to be vomited by hell instead of being believed to be sent by heaven. Oh, my poor uncle, oh, my noble father, you were heretics in my eyes as I was in yours. And yet if you should appear to me, if I had the happiness again to see your image, now destroyed by death, I should receive it on my knees. I should extend my arms to it. I should think it detached from the bosom of God, where souls go to be renewed, and where forms are recomposed. I would not say to you your abominable formulas of dismissal and malediction, impious exorcisms of fear and abandonment. On the contrary, I would call to you, 
I would wish to contemplate you with love and to retain you about me as succoring influences. Oh, my mother, it is determined. I must be dead to them, and they must die through my means or without me. Albert had not left his country before being assured that the canonists had resisted this last shock of misfortune. That old woman, as diseased and as strongly constituted as myself, also knows how to live from a feeling of duty. Respectable in her convictions and in her misfortunes, she counts with resignation the bitter days which God still imposes upon her. But in her sorrow, she preserves a certain stiffness of pride which survives the affections. She lately said to a person who wrote of it to us, if we did not endure life from a sense of duty, it would still be necessary to endure it from regard to propriety. This sentence describes to you all the canonists. Thenceforth, Albert no longer thought of leaving us, and his courage seemed to increase with his trials. He even seemed to have overcome his love, and throwing himself into an entirely philosophical life, he no longer appeared interested in anything but religion, moral science, and revolutionary actions. He gave himself up to the most serious labors, and his vast intellect thus received a development as serene and magnificent as his sad heart had had an excessive and feverish one when far from us. This strange man, whose delirium had dismayed Catholic souls, became a torch of wisdom for minds of a superior order. He was initiated into the most private confidences of the Invisibles and took rank among the chiefs and fathers of this new church. He brought to them many lights, which they received with love and gratitude. The reforms which he proposed were assented to, and in the exercise of a faith militant, he returned to the hope and the serenity of mind which makes heroes and martyrs. We thought he had triumphed over his love for you. So much care had he taken to conceal from us his struggles and his sufferings. But one day, the correspondence of the adepts, which it was no longer possible to withhold from him, brought to our sanctuary a notice which was very cruel, in spite of the uncertainty with which it remained surrounded. You were considered in the minds of some persons at Berlin as the mistress of the King of Prussia, and appearances did not contradict this supposition. Albert said nothing, and became pale. My well-beloved friend, said he to me, after some moment's silence, this time you will let me depart without fear. The duty of my love calls me to Berlin. My place is by the side of her whom I love, and who has accepted my protection. I do not arrogate to myself any right over her. If she be intoxicated by the sad honor that is attributed to her, I shall not employ any authority to induce her to renounce it. But if, as I am certain, she is surrounded with snares and dangers, I shall know how to save her from them. Stop, Albert, said I to him, and dread the power of that fatal passion which has already wrought you so much suffering. The evil which will come to you from that direction is the only one that is beyond your strength. I see well that you no longer live, but by your virtue and your love. If that love perish in you, will virtue suffice you? And why should my love perish, returned Albert with enthusiasm, 
you then think that she may have already ceased to be worthy of it. And if it were so, Albert, what would you do? He smiled with those pale lips and that brilliant glance, which are given him by his strong and sorrowful enthusiasm. If it were so, replied he, I should continue to love her, for the past is not a dream that is effaced in me, and you know that I have often confounded it with the present so far as to be no longer able to distinguish one from the other. Well, I would again do so. I would love in the past that angel face, that poet soul, by which my dark life has been lighted and suddenly inflamed, and I should not perceive that the past is behind me. I should preserve in my bosom its burning trace. The erring being, the fallen angel, would still inspire me with so much solicitude and tenderness that my life should be consecrated to the work of consoling her for her fall and removing her from the contempt of cruel men. Albert departed for Berlin with several of our friends and had for a pretext with the Princess Amelia, his protectress, to converse with her about Trenck then a prisoner at Glatz, and about the Masonic operations into which she was initiated. You saw him presiding over a lodge of Rosicrucians, and he did not know at the time that Cagliostro, informed in spite of us respecting his secrets, had made use of that circumstance to bewilder your reason by secretly causing you to see him as a specter. From this sole fact of having allowed a profane person to cast a glance upon the Masonic mysteries, the intriguing Cagliostro would have deserved to be forever excluded from them. But it was unknown for a long time, and you must remember the terror he experienced while conducting you to the precincts of the temple. The punishments due to this treachery are rigorously inflicted by the adepts, and the magician and making the mysteries of his order serve as pretended prodigies of his marvelous art, risked perhaps his life, certainly at least his great reputation as a necromancer, for he would have been unmasked and driven away immediately. In the short and mysterious day which he made in Berlin at that period, Albert was enabled to penetrate your actions and your thoughts sufficiently to be reassured respecting your position. He watched you closely without your knowledge and returned tranquil in appearance but more ardently in love than ever. During several months he traveled in foreign countries and served our cause with activity. But having been warned that some intriguers, perhaps spies of the King of Prussia, were endeavoring to frame at Berlin a particular conspiracy, dangerous to the existence of masonry and probably fatal to Prince Henry and to his sister, the abbess of Quindlinburg. Albert hastened thither in order to warn those princes of the absurdity of such an attempt and to put them on their guard against the snare which it seemed to cover. You saw him then, and though terrified at his apparition, you showed so much courage afterwards, and you expressed to his friends so much devotedness and respect for his memory, that he recovered the hope of being loved by you. It was therefore resolved that you should be informed of the truth of his existence by a succession of mysterious revelations. He was often near you, and even hidden in your apartment during your stormy conferences with the king. In the meanwhile, 
the conspirators became irritated by the obstacles which Albert and his friends presented to their culpable or foolish designs. Frederick II conceived suspicions, the appearance of the sweeper, that specter which all conspirators set in motion in the galleries of the palace in order to create disorder and fear, awakened his watchfulness. The creation of a Masonic lodge at the head of which Prince Henry placed himself and which was found at the first, in an opposition of doctrines with that over which the king presides in person, appeared to the latter an act significative of revolt. And perhaps, in fact, that creation of a new lodge was a clumsy mask assumed by certain conspirators or an attempt to compromise illustrious personages. Happily, they saved themselves from it, and the king, apparently furious at finding only obscure criminals, but secretly satisfied at not having to be severe towards his own family, wished at least to make an example. My son, the most innocent of all, was arrested and transferred to Spandau, almost at the same time with yourself, whose innocence was not less apparent. But you were both guilty of not being willing to save yourselves at the expense of anyone, and you paid for all the others. You passed several months in prison not far from Albert's cell, and you must have heard the passionate accents of his violin as he also heard those of your voice. He had prompted certain means of escape at his command, but he did not wish to use them before having secured yours. The key of gold is more powerful than all the bolts of the royal prisons, and the Prussian jailers, for the most part discontented soldiers or officers in disgrace, are very easily corrupted. Albert escaped at the same time with yourself, but you did not see him, and for reasons which you will know hereafter. Liverani was charged to bring you here. Now you know the rest. Albert loves you more than ever, but he loves you more than he does himself, and he will be a thousand times less unhappy at your happiness with another than he would be at his own. Did you not share it? The moral and philosophical laws, the religious authority under which you were both placed henceforth, permit his sacrifice and render your choice free and respectable. Choose then, my daughter, but remember that Albert's mother requests you on her knees not to do injustice to the sublime candor of her son by making for him a sacrifice, the bitterness of which would fall upon his life. Your desertion will make him suffer, but your pity, without your love, will kill him. The hour has come for you to pronounce— I must not know your decision. Pass into your chamber. You will there find two very different costumes. That which you choose will decide the lot of my son. And which of the two must signify my divorce from him, asked Consuelo, trembling. I was to have informed you, but I will not. I wish to know if you will divine it. The Countess Wanda, having thus spoken, resumed her mask pressed Consuela to her heart, and rapidly departed. The End of Chapter 36